Welcome to the Hashcast, a short show focused on mining Bitcoin at home, brought to you every 2016 blocks at the time of the difficulty adjustment. This is episode 360. Today is March 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Econo Alchemist. This show offers you a chance to catch up on the last two weeks of Bitcoin mining stats, news, developments, home miner setups, and any breaking privacy implications. I hope you enjoy. Let's get started. The first thing we're going to take a look at here is bitrar.com, and this is where you can find a cool graphic that outlines the 2016 blocks in every difficulty epoch. And you can see here we're about 12 blocks into difficulty epoch number 361, having just closed out difficulty epoch number 360 at block height 727775 with a negative 0.35 difficulty adjustment. This is the second consecutive downward difficulty adjustment we've had. And this is the first time we've had two consecutive downward difficulty adjustments since the China ban. So uh, right now, the difficulty is sitting at 27.4. That is down from 27.5 trillion. If we take a look at the Bitcoin difficulty chart from coinwars.com, you can see looking at the last year, the peak at 27 trillion and then tumbling down during the China ban and the market crash all the way down to 13.6 trillion. This was the last time we saw two consecutive downward difficulty adjustments, and this was going back to the middle of July 2021. Since that time, everything has just been going up. There's been one downward difficulty adjustment since this last one on July 20th, 2021. Everything else has been up since then. There's been one downward difficulty adjustment. So we had another diff downward difficulty adjustment last epoch and we just had one this epoch so what's going on why are we getting two difficulty adjustments in a row that are downward well it could be any number of things you know the price action on bitcoin moving sideways is probably making a lot of people who are running s9s question whether or not they should be running their miners right now and they may be taking their s9s offline that could be one explanation uh, another contributing factor could be that there's a war going on between Ukraine and Russia and perhaps Bitcoin miners in Ukraine or in that area are being disrupted by that invasion. Uh, it could be a combination of the two. We've seen things like the EU making a push to ban proof of work mining again in recent days. And that was shut down so that's not going to happen but you know that could have scared some people into just preemptively shutting down their mining operations or it could be any combination of the above it could also be that there's just a, a lot of challenges and in getting infrastructure built out to get mining operations online so you know we'll see what happens but i'm kind of surprised to see two downward difficulty adjustments in a row and there's a lot going on in the world and it could be attributed to just about anything. Uh, we can look at the hash rate chart moving on. This is also from coinwars.com. And, you know, this over the last month just tells me that the hash rate has been pretty much moving sideways. Uh, we can expand this out over the course of the year. And yeah, it has been increasing for sure. But keep in mind, using a chart that displays these values in daily time windows makes it look really whippy. And you get some funny looking values like this one here, which says that the 
overall network hash rate peaked at 250 exahash. Well, that's not really the case. You, you should be using a chart that averages out that time period over something like 14 days, which is what this chart does. And if you look at this one, like, yeah, the overall network hash rate peaked at like 207 exahash. And right now it's just under 200 exahash. So let's see if we can zoom in on this to three months. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you can see like over the course of the last month, not a whole lot has changed with hash rate. I mean, it's just kind of hovering right around that 200 exahash mark. So it's kind of interesting. We'll see what happens if we get another jump up or if we get a dip down. I don't know. You know, there there could be a lot of downward regulatory pressure on the mining environment globally, like making people not want to participate in proof of work mining. Um, the sideways price action on Bitcoin itself could be making people turn off their ASICs. Uh, global disruptions in supply chain and logistics is making infrastructure a complete nightmare. So there's a lot of factors at play here, but you know, overall, we'll see what happens. Things kind of just seem to be trending down in a lot of different areas. So hash rate has been going down. Um, we're looking here at the Luxor hash rate price index and the price of miners has been going down. The price of Bitcoin has been staying sideways or, you know, pretty much going down. I know we had a little bit of a increase in the last couple of days here to like 41, 42,000, but, um, I don't know how sustainable that is or if things are going to turn around. I kind of think that that $65,000, $70,000 peak we hit with Bitcoin, I think that was the bull market. So, you know, we could be in for a couple of rough years ahead, but we'll see what happens. Miner Daily uh, published an article on this exact subject, like the Bitcoin miner prices are dropping. You know, the price of everything kind of seems to be dropping. And so I think... This article does a good job of explaining like what you can expect as a miner, like going into these kind of downward trending markets. And it explains your ROI time. Uh, why is the return on investment getting longer? Uh, price buoyancy, quick analysis, other considerations. And then they also mention in here, when is the best time to buy and they also put in here a home mining scenario, uh, which I liked, you know, in this example, things would have turned out more favorably for this home miner had they just bought Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is that they, they would have had more Bitcoin at the end of the day, but there's a lot more that goes into someone making a decision like that because that means that you're just buying at an exchange and you're not enabling yourself to participate in the network with a miner of your own. By not participating in the network with a miner of your own, you have zero say in what pools are getting hash rate. At least if you have a miner of your own, you can point it at whatever pool you want and you can make that decision based on like, what pools align with what you believe in. If you think blocks should be censored, then you can go ahead and call up Marathon and see if you can mine on their pool. If you don't think blocks should be censored, you can mine on a based pool like Slush Pool. 
Additionally, you know, if you had bought that Bitcoin through the exchange, then you're handing over your KYC information. You're opening yourself up to third party risk. The government could just come in and tell the exchange to turn off the withdrawal button. You're opening yourself up to the risk of having hackers break into that exchange database and then leak your selfie, your address, your UTXOs on the dark web and then having your door kicked in and your family held hostage until you hand over those private keys. So yeah, the miner could have had more Bitcoin at the end of the day, but you know, really like they're going to have a KYC shitcoin at the end of the day. And they're either going to have to decide to like sell it back to the exchange, to close that KYC loop or use Whirlpool to coin join it, get some forward looking privacy. But if they do that, that doesn't erase the KYC event and they're always going to be on the hook for the Bitcoin they bought. They may always have to, there's nothing that's going to erase that KYC information because it exists off chain. So there's nothing they can do on chain to get rid of it. So they may have to answer to someone someday, some authority, IRS, government, whatever. They might have to answer as to what happened to that Bitcoin and what what did they do with it? And they might have to get really creative in their answers unless they want to have a foot on their throat. I don't fucking know. Long story short, I just think there's a lot more that goes into someone making a decision about like just comparing the number of Bitcoin they got in mining rewards and the amount of Bitcoin they could have got just buying it because there's, there's a lot more that goes into that. And you should be thinking about that pretty carefully. All right, so let's move on to news. The first news item I have is that Kazakhstan has confiscated nearly $200 million in mining equipment from unregistered miners. Um, so this really pisses me off. It's complete bullshit. You've got this group of people that are mining Bitcoin. They're buying the equipment. They're building out the infrastructure. They're paying for the electricity and then all of a sudden the government comes in and says okay now there's a new law and you have to be registered and so you get these bitcoin miners that have been like doing something that's perfectly legal and then all of a sudden with the stroke of a pen the pendulum swings and suddenly the things that were perfectly legal one day are now illegal the next day and it's just like what what do you expect like the this law just pops up and you you instantly expect people to start complying with it and and here's the sad truth of the situation like the government has the monopoly on violence and they just went in and stole this mining equipment from these miners so effectively you know their tax rate was a hundred percent they lost everything they lost it all the government just came in and took it what can miners do about adversarial environments like this where they're operating under an authoritarian government like use a vpn for your mining operation first and foremost so at least you like corner off that threat from the isp knowing that you're mining and then the second thing you should do is not put all your eggs in one basket like have several decentralized mining operations set up so that they're consuming a smaller amount of electricity and that if one gets taken out, it doesn't necessarily mean that all the others are going to get taken out. That's about all I have to say about that. You can read the article. I'll link it in the show notes. Next piece of news I have is that Hive blockchain announces landmark deal to buy new performing ASIC chips from Intel and a hundred megawatt renewable energy deal in Texas. So 
basically what happened here is that Hive teamed up with Intel to get the BMZ2 ASIC chips. At least I think it's the BMZ2. They're going to get ASIC chips from Intel and they're going to use those chips to integrate into mining hardware that they're making. And then they also made a deal with Compute North to set up a 100 megawatt facility in Texas. So yeah, you know, they're going to be getting ASIC chips straight from the source. They're going to be building their own hardware and then they're going to be using their own hardware to fill up this new 100 megawatt facility that they're going to be operating. So, you know, that kind of stuff takes a long time to put together. Uh, but this is why I think difficulty will continue its trend up and to the right over the long haul. There might be some little dips here and there along the way because of geopolitical interruptions or because of minor infrastructure delays or because of the prospect of having regulators clamp down on Bitcoin miners. But I think overall, you know, we're just going to continue to see hash rate go up and up and up. Moving on to developments. Um, I thought this was a good development by Sovereign Mindset. In here, he basically outlines his thoughts about what kind of risk these mega miners pose for everybody. The main risk being that it's a lot easier for these regulators to clamp down on these large mining facilities. They have a massive electrical footprint. They're public companies. They're publicly announcing everything that they're doing and it, it, they're kind of just in the crosshairs. So it's a lot easier for regulators to look at them and say, Hey, you need to start complying with what we want you to comply with. Otherwise we're going to shut your business operation down. And because these large miners are being publicly funded or they're raising investor capital, they have to maintain their fiduciary duties to their investors. And if the government comes around and says, we need you to censor transactions, we need you to blacklist OFAC addresses, these large miners don't really have a choice in the matter. Their hands are kind of tied and they're gonna end up doing it. In fact, a lot of these large miners seemingly want to welcome in that regulation with open arms. That may sound counterintuitive, but if you think about it from their point of view, like that's how you build a regulatory moat around your business. You make it extremely difficult for competition to catch up with what you've done because you kind of got in on the ground floor and built this up over a long period of time. Whereas if you just come in as a brand new company and try to catch up and comply with all of the new regulations and everything that's transpired over the last several years of these big miners building out their companies, like you don't have a fighting chance in that situation. You can't compete with them. So you can't get the kinds of advantages that they get. You can't get the kind of investment that they're getting. So for these large companies, it really doesn't mean much to set up a compliance department and have a team of people that focus on nothing but complying with these government regulations. So we'll see what happens, but you know, Marathon was already mining OFAC compliant blocks and they stopped doing it, but it's it really kind of just let you know where their head was at. They seem to want to welcome in this regulation so that 
it's more difficult for other people to compete with them. Personally, I think that's just going to drive a lot more people to the black market of Bitcoin mining. Fine. So be it, you know, pass whatever regulations you want. There's still going to be a large portion of the population that does not give two flying fucks what the government says, and they're going to continue mining anyways. Moving on, Patrick Hansen put this thread together about the EU parliament and the push to ban proof of work mining again. This got voted down, so it's kind of a non-issue at this point. This isn't the first time though that the EU parliament has tried to make this push and it's not gonna be the last time. They will continue to do this. My main point here is that be careful what you see in these like ridiculous policy pushes because what they'll do is they'll ask for way more than they really want. So they they don't really want to ban proof of work mining, but they'll say that really what they want is just all the miners to be captured and everyone to report to them and to be registered so that they can get the tax revenue and control what the miners can and cannot do with their hash rate by telling them like you can't mine any transactions that are on the OFAC list. So that's really what they want. They don't really want to ban proof of work mining, but they'll go around and they'll say, oh, we want to ban proof of work mining so that people feel relieved and they feel like there's a sense of fairness and negotiation going on when they don't ban proof of work mining. They'll feel like their voices were heard and they fought the good fight and they got them not to ban proof of work mining. Yay. So we got to win. All we need to do now is register our mining operations and we can't mine any OFAC blacklisted addresses. Well, that's not a win. That's a fucking lose. Do not comply with these tyrants. Do not give them an inch. Stand up and fight. I know it's difficult when you have a company and you have employees, but like if you've got a compliance team or you have the resources to spin up a compliance team, you have the resources to put some lawyers to work and start drafting some lawsuits against these regulators and start preparing for the fight that you should be fighting. You should not be rolling over and allowing censorship to creep into Bitcoin. If that's what you want in Bitcoin, like you don't need Bitcoin to do that. Like go somewhere else, go back to the legacy system. Like you don't need to try and push that kind of stuff in Bitcoin. It's not going to work out well for you or your employees or your investors. If you're a large mining operation, like you have the resources to put up a fight. Little miners like home miners and micro miners, we don't have the resources to put up any sort of substantial fight. All we can do is vote with our hash rate and use our machines to point at whatever pool we think aligns with our ideologies. But if you think that like compliance and censorship is going to be good for the Bitcoin space, you're fooling yourself. And if you think that that's how we lead ourselves to mass adoption, you're fooling yourself. All you're going to get is a regurgitated version of the legacy system and that legacy system is broken. So all of those broken functions are going to be duplicated in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And at the end of the day, you're really not going to have accomplished anything. All you're going to have done is raised a whole bunch of money, lined your pockets with cash and then sold it to investors when your company goes public and then cashed out and then like you've just left the people who were trying to use bitcoin 
as a tool for individual freedom, you're going to leave those people high and dry. Anyways, I just don't agree with how these big miners seemingly have open arms when it comes to these regulations because they're they're trying to build the regulatory moats around themselves, but they're really just selling out to the legacy system. And they're like undoing everything that Bitcoin was created to solve for in the first place. So it's just really ironic. Anyways, we can move on to this other piece of developing news, which is the Bitcoin Policy Institute. I had never heard of these guys before, but let's just take a look at this website here. So no nonsense Bitcoin research about us, who we are. The Bitcoin Policy Institute is an interdisciplinary cohort of economists, coders, lawyers, climate scientists, philosophers, and policy analysts providing research, fact-checking, and commentary on Bitcoin. Bitcoin may well change society's relationship with money as profoundly as the internet did with information. Future policy debates on issues ranging from national security to central bank digital currencies will require a robust understanding of the Bitcoin network. So basically, this group put out a report and I can open up the report here too. Uh, so this report is 59 pages, but if we go down to like page 28... They start talking about mining, and this is where I found some of the most interesting parts of the report. So yeah, so right here, so I guess it was page 29, they started talking about it. Incentivize renewable energy generation, improve energy system resilience. So they kind of put together this interesting idea. You know, it's not the first time I've heard it, but basically they're saying you can take like a bunch of less efficient miners like S9s and you can put them in West Texas and hook them up to the windmills and they can use the energy that's not being put under demand. The reason I found that interesting is because if you look at like current wind generation on ERCOT, E-R-C-O-T, that's the Texas grid. I took this screenshot at 11.30 my time on a Saturday night. You can see how much wind energy was being produced on ERCOT at that time. 22.4 gigawatts of electricity was available just from the windmills. Now, what's interesting about that is that's a lot of power. If you look at the entire NYISO grid at that exact same time, their total grid capacity was 16.3 gigawatts. So what's staggering to me is that in Texas, just from windmills, they've got way more electricity than the entire grid has in New York. And so what's interesting about that is you have this like all this energy being produced in one place where there's like not any demand for it. I mean, we're talking about 1130 on a Saturday night and you've got these windmills that are just cranking out all this energy. When this energy gets produced, it has to be consumed. It has to be consumed on demand. You can't just store that much power and use it when you need it later. And apparently we can't really transmit it over to New York either. I mean, they're, they're two completely separate grids. This power is like, what, what are these windmills doing? Like, why do we have them there? Like what they're just producing this energy and then you don't have any demand for it. So Anyways, the idea was just to like plug in these less efficient ASICs that be okay in environments where they're like spinning up and shutting down une unexpectedly instead of just running constantly all the time. And you could put a bunch of S9s, plug them into these windmills, and 
use that energy, at least put it to use, put it to some sort of economic use instead of just like letting it evaporate. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the NYISO grid, like when I said 16 gigawatts of power, that was from everything. That was from that was from dual fuel, that was from natural gas, that was from nuclear, that was from other fossil fuels, that was from wind, other renewables, hydro, like everything, the entire grid, 16 gigawatts, where you had 22 gigawatts of just wind energy in Texas. So, you know, there's these big discrepancies between what these grids are capable of doing. And I imagine New York being more populated, like you've probably got a lot more demand in this area, at least a lot more constant demand. So unless you can get the energy from these windmills to New York, which obviously you can't, then these windmills aren't really doing anybody any good. So it does make sense to just plug some S9s into them. However, the report went on and then things kind of took a turn for the bizarre, um, I can just kind of scroll down to that section. They they started talking about like how Bitcoin mining and grid infrastructure is going to become a matter of national security and how it wouldn't be surprising if like national intelligence agencies got contracted to help protect these Bitcoin mining operations because they're saying that they're going to be targeted by like espionage and like counterintelligence operatives from other countries that are trying to like screw up the electrical grids. Bitcoin mining infrastructure is going to become so crucial to the grid infrastructure that like other countries are going to try and attack it to hurt the United States. And so they're like saying in this guide that like it's going to become a matter of national security. And I'm just like really not looking forward to Bitcoin mining being a matter of national security because, you know, look at the other things that are matters of national security. Look at like how closely guarded the nuclear warhead sites are in the United States. Like no one can get in there. No one can see what's going on. You have to have a top secret clearance to get access to it you have to like go through all these approvals like you know any sort of like national security issue becomes so tightly guarded that no one can access it and that's not what bitcoin is about so i just cannot imagine a world where bitcoin is a national security issue that has three-letter agencies like the cia running counterintelligent operations worldwide to protect the domestic mining operations in the united states I cannot imagine a world where that is happening simultaneously with like censorship resistance. Those two things just don't line up. And this is the opposite of the separation of money and state. This is the state like taking a tighter control over Bitcoin. And I just thought there was some real eye-opening pieces of information in this article and I'll link it in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. Cool. So moving on to home miner setups, we've seen daddy BTC underscore pleb in here before, but I just wanted to highlight this one because in this thread, he talk, he's talking about how he reduced his natural gas usage by 70% in the month of February. And he's doing that by using the heat from his ASIC. So he's no longer using his natural gas to heat his home as much. He's using the ASICs to provide that heat. So I just thought that was awesome. And he puts a lot of data in here 
And it's just kind of interesting to think about like saving energy costs in one area where you have increased energy costs in another for the energy used with the Bitcoin miners, you're getting the sats and you're producing the heat that's allowing you to reduce your dependence on other expenses. So it's just like a double win. And I think you should definitely check that out. This one was really cool. So this dude is mining uh, with his Airstream. So he goes into the RV park and parks his rig and then he plugs his miner into like the heat intake for his RV and now he's heating his RV with a with an S9. So he kind of goes through his whole setup here and I just thought that that was pretty creative and interesting to see because uh, you usually only see people doing this in houses. And so this one was a home on wheels. These RV parks have the power hookups. So he's just hooking the miner up and the energy costs are included with the stay. So you're paying for the site and that energy is included. So yeah, he's stacking sats, heating his RV and getting his energy for free. And I just thought that was a pretty cool setup. So check that one out. And that one came from Schnitzel. So check him out on Twitter. And then we've got Das Faisal. What I liked about this one was he 3D printed this thing. Let this open up here. So he 3D printed this like this top that goes over the S9 and like it keeps all the cables like bundled up nice and tight and it has a handle on it so you can carry it easily and just plug it in. And so you got your power supply and your cables in there. Like everything's just like, clean and tight and convenient and so he he put all this online and i just thought that that was really cool and worth checking out oh and then we've got uh btc speedboat i thought this one was was interesting because he wired up some leds to his minor rack so if it's like a green day with price action, the LEDs will be green. And if it's a down day with price action, the LEDs will be red. I just thought that that was kind of a creative use of LEDs and wiring and home hobbyist fun. So check that one out. Uh, and then, okay, moving on to privacy. I thought this was an interesting thread that Matt O'Dell posted this screenshot of. So Brett here from FTX put this thread together, kind of explaining exactly what the FTX exchange is doing. And, and this is, from what I understand, very common practice among many exchanges. And so he's saying what information they collect and what databases they verify it against. And if it can't be verified, then the user's not getting an account. And then if it is fully verified, then they go on to the next stage of verification and make sure it's not hitting any watch lists or included on the treasury's OFAC list or the DOJ's FBI wanted list. And if it is, then that you know, you, the user's automatically getting reported if they hit any of those. And then, you know, once it clear, once the user clears all those, then all the transactions, all the fiat transactions are being monitored. If we detect a deposit is coming from withdraw is going to a sanctioned bank or other blacklisted sources, we block the user's activity. So they're constantly monitoring like where the fiat is coming from and where the fiat is going to. And then he goes on to say, that they monitor the deposits and withdrawals using on-chain risk analysis and transaction monitoring tools. And 
so they're following all the movement on chain as well and these databases have known sanction addresses and heuristics and that help them determine geographic locations and they have machine learning algorithms that identify suspicious patterns and transfer histories and like dude it's just really kind of eye-opening to hear someone from an exchange talk about what the exchanges are doing because you have people like myself who are out there trying to warn everybody what these exchanges are doing and i get brushed off as like a psychopath because i it just comes across as me being paranoid but no you have someone at an exchange actually actually going taking the time and putting it all out there like you cannot deny that this is what the exchanges are doing and i've been saying this for a long time that these exchanges are monitoring everything that you're doing and they will blacklist you and jesse powell from uh kraken you know he put out a tweet thread recently too like around the time the canadian trucker convoy was getting funds frozen and he was saying there's absolutely nothing the exchange can do to protect the user. And that's aligned with what I've been saying for a long time. The exchanges do not have the user's best interests in mind. Like you are trusting these third parties that are so invasively getting into your business. Like you don't even know, you don't even know what these guys are getting into and what you're exposing yourself to. It's so bad. Just stay away from it. Anyways, the other piece of privacy information that I wanted to talk about was Wasabi Wallet. So they put out this cryptic tweet a few days ago and it says the ZK Snacks coordinator will start ref refusing certain UTXOs from registering to coin joins. So if you don't know, Wasabi Wallet is working under this company called ZK Snacks and ZK Snacks has the coordinator, the coin join coordinator that the Wasabi Wallet connects to. And the reason this is set up under a business entity, I imagine, is because the coordinator is generating the fees that people pay to use the coin join. So anyways, you like download the wallet for free, but then you pay the coordinator to use the coin join. And so I imagine that's why they set up a legal entity around it. But they decided to start blacklisting and refusing certain UTXOs from being able to use their coin join implementation. And then, you know, they go on further. No para 73 is sitting here saying that they're going to have to hire a chain analysis company to determine what ad, what UTXOs need to be blocked from their coin join. So he's basically saying if you use Wasabi wallets coin join, then you for sure are going to have your UTXOs analyzed by a chain analysis company why would you want to subject yourself to that level of privacy intrusion? And then you've got other like Wasabi Wallet. I don't know if Max Hillebrand is an executive at Wasabi Wallet or how he's involved as an investor or whatever, but like he's trying to spin it as saying like that this is just curating the UTXOs that users get to mix with. Like, Dude, don't try and spin this, man. It's censorship. You guys are censoring people. Anyways, things at Wasabi Wallet just really seem to be unraveling fast. I, you know, it, it really kind of defeats the purpose of trying to use a privacy tool when the coordinator basically needs to get to know you before you can use it. Like that really just defeats the purpose of it. So they're going to be 
engaging in censorship and they're going to be using a chain analysis company like that's not that doesn't work anyways i would just recommend steering clear of that complete dumpster fire and you know with that i'll post some links to some interesting posts about the wasabi wallet debate but with that i think i'm going to wrap it up and i hope you all have a good couple of weeks and we'll see you back at the next difficulty adjustment